0: Hey, this is Nick Romolini and welcome to another episode of The Blank Page, a podcast about creativity, neuroses, and the intersection of the two. Today's guest is Oscar-nominated filmmaker Sam French. Sam and I worked together on an episode of the docu-series Religion of Sports. Sam was the director, I was the editor. Our episode was about the rise of esports. It was a blast to work on that show with Sam, and reflecting on that time has actually really made me miss long-form documentary storytelling. As always, we covered a wide range of topics. Obviously, anxiety, the indie filmmaking hustle, Sam's time in Afghanistan as a doc filmmaker, also during which time he made his short film Buscacci Boys, which was later nominated for an Oscar. Being true to yourself as a storyteller, how Sam got into the business, the USC MFA and the benefits of that program, The sort of bewildering nature of working your way up in the film business, how filmmaking rewards age and wisdom, being a stress junkie, being self-destructive, his PTSD after coming back from Afghanistan the perspective that comes with age, how we process trauma and come out the other side, therapy, masking everything with alcohol, facing your problems, sobriety, showing up for life, success, failure, how we define it. We talk about Sam's roots. We touch on white privilege. We also talked about his new doc, which is about evangelicals and the environment. We took a sort of deep dive into theology and Catholicism and the origins of evangelicals. We discussed the value of faith and letting go. And we talked about writing a little bit at the end. We touch on writing throughout and we took a jump into writing for this sort of last 15-20 minutes of the show. Sam's in the midst of adapting a fantasy series, so we discussed adaptations a bit as well. This episode was recorded back in October, a week before the election. The subsequent week, I suffered from a panic attack that lasted well into the middle of the night, 4 o'clock in the morning. I wrote out a will because I thought I was going to die that night. Uh, I kept clutching at my chest, convinced that my heart was, uh, that it was the end for me. I took a picture of myself in a lighthearted moment and sent it to a friend and a part of me thought it was going to be the last picture ever taken of me. So I will share that on the show's Facebook page so you can, so you can see my deranged face in the midst of an hours long panic attack. But things are looking up now. Things are good. So, uh, so yeah, I should also note that the Dodgers won the World Series midway through the recording of the episode. So if you hear wild fireworks throughout and random screaming, it's because the Dodgers won the World Series. As always, if you enjoy the show, you could rate it, leave a review, subscribe so you see when new episodes come up. And the more ratings you guys give me, the more it'll help bury the one star rating that that one guy gave me for some reason, which isn't something I've been dwelling on at all. Like why somebody would rate the show one star, why somebody dislikes me that much and has a personal vendetta against me. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam French. I really appreciated his generosity with his time and his wisdom. I whined a lot, as usual, and Sam offered really helpful perspective and was very grounding for me. I appreciated the wisdom of somebody a few years my senior who's been through a lot of the struggles that I've been through. That's it, enjoy the show. Thank you guys so much for checking it out. Oh, man. Sam fucking French. <laughs> How you doing, Nick? It's good to hear your voice, buddy. How's your anxiety right now?
1: It's better talking to you, man. You got a perfect podcast voice. It's so low and mellow. Oh, it's nice. thank you. That's really, that's <laughs> yeah. too
0: kind. It's funny, though, as relates to anxiety, I was just thinking a few minutes ago about it's exactly four years, almost to the day, since we last worked together. And as as pertains to anxiety uh we were at a fever pitch then the last day that i worked on that show with you was election day
1: now i don't want to get into that shit
0: too much but you know it's crazy four years ago
1: that's crazy and i remember i yeah i went out that night with martin and uh it was it was a terrible evening yeah god not because of the show that ended up Pretty good i think sure but uh, not a good night sure in america yeah for but, sure
0: hey here we are um yeah so your anxiety is all right
1: yeah so it's interesting i'm actually really lucky i think i uh i think i realized that i'm much more of an introvert than i ever thought i was mm. i've always thought of myself as a raging extrovert i've always the life of the party and everything like that but uh when this pandemic hit i really found that i loved being by myself in my apartment and really allowed me to focus on some some creative projects that I didn't know that I wanted to focus on. I mean, it was, it was interesting because I think as an independent filmmaker, you're always trying to find the next thing because you need to pay rent, you know? Sure. And so you're always just grasping out there for, please, someone give me a job. Please, like, will, uh, will people like this, you know? And you're coming up with ideas and you're throwing together pitch decks and all this stuff. And then when March came around and I was stuck in my apartment, I'm, I'm, I'm like, what do I actually love to do? What do I care about the most? And I started diving into some really interesting creative projects. So I think that I'm lucky that I was able to do that. And I think that really helped my anxiety for sure.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think, I don't think that's necessarily true of everybody right now. I think, um, I mean, I think a lot of people are suffering right now. I mean, personally, yeah personally it's been um it's been quite a fucking journey since uh since this whole thing came down i mean like panic attacks and you know different shit like that but it's it's actually really forced me to address some really deep shit um that's you know laid dormant for a while or mm. been kicking around for a while so i don't know man i'm well, I'm grateful for this time and strange as it is
1: um Yeah. What are you, what are you, what are you dealing with? Mr. Podcast host? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, are you okay? (laughs) I mean,
0: I'm, I'm okay today. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wasn't okay that one night last week when I had like pins and needles in my hands, my left hand. And I was like, Oh, this is it. This is the start. Like this is going to go right up my arm and then my heart's going to go. And this is how I go out. And I had, yeah. like, an hour-long panic attack um, during which I thought I was going to die. Um, yeah. You you know, know. That's, that's but real. I didn't it's
1: die. Yeah, you didn't die. It's, really, you know, it's real stuff. I'm glad you actually brought it up because, it's, I mean, I'm, I was being a little flippant, but I think I went through my, my darkest hours before the dawn uh, about seven years ago when I – was going through that, my panic attacks and my, my massive debilitating anxiety um, when I was leaving Afghanistan. And I, uh, so it's no joke. I feel for you, man.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a trip, man. It's funny. Like I have some friends who are like, Oh, you're not, you're not on medication. And I'm like, (laughs) nah, I'm like, it's not really for me. You know, I don't really want to do that. Um, Not that I am judgmental at all of people who are, I think that's wonderful that some people make that choice, but I'm like, man, I, I, I can, I just don't want to take that step. Um, yeah. Even yeah. helpful as it may be. I'm like, I will fucking meditate my face off to try to avoid <laughs> that like ultimate, you know, last solution or whatever. But, but yeah, man, that's seven years ago. I was actually, I was curious. I wanted to talk like, You're an Oscar-nominated filmmaker. That's correct. You're an Oscar-nominated filmmaker. I mean, I I don't know how (laughs) I took that for granted, like, previous to this conversation. (laughs) Like, that's a big fucking deal, man. So congratulations on that. Like, that's fucking huge.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, Yeah, it is a big deal. And I feel like, you know, I don't – let it define my life because if I did then I'd, I'd, uh, it would be the pinnacle of my life of course. Um, seven years ago you know what I mean um, but yeah you, you gotta recognize it was fun to, uh, to go to the Academy Awards for sure um, the best part about the whole thing and I'm sure we'll get into it um, how the whole thing came about but the best part was taking the two kids who starred in my film from Afghanistan to LA to go attend the Academy Awards for me that was the most amazing part unbelievable yeah unbelievable
0: so well, Yeah, but, it's
1: not, but, it, but, it, but bringing it back, because I want to talk about all that stuff, but bringing it back to the anxiety, because I'm glad you brought that up, because you know stress can be induced through good things that happen in your life, as well as bad things that happen in your life. I think that's something that people don't remember or that people forget. Totally. And so the biggest part in my life, the biggest stress and the most anxiety I've ever felt in my entire life was the week after the Academy Awards. When I went back to afghanistan and was like what am i doing with my life right i just don't know where i'm going i mean i have this incredible achievement and i have this company in afghanistan and and i and yet i found myself curled on the floor unable to move so i mean it's not this isn't you know dealing with these things in life it's not just about like you suck you're depressed you know, your life it's is your fault. It's your fault. It's like, no, no, no. Life is stressful and it can be massive, massive change and upheaval, whether it's good or bad can cause those feelings. So
0: yeah, it's a really good point. I, look, I mean, a big reason why I wanted to start this podcast, like the big reason why I want to talk to people about this shit is because I don't, think people really talk about this stuff in our business and i think it's like a scourge of our business and like as an editor the most connected i ever have been is to producers and directors in the bay when we stop talking about the show for five ten minutes and we start chopping it up about this real very real stuff and like i don't know you've always you've always I felt an in- instant connection to you and I s- still feel really connected to you four years after last working with you, two years after the last time I saw you. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you you're you just strike me as such an honest and genuine person and, like, as somebody who, I, you know, I'm sometimes worried that, like, I'm so honest and I'm so, like, raw and visceral and, like, this business is, like, rife with... Disingenuous people. I mean, or maybe it's not. Maybe that's just a fucked up perception of mine. But like, sometimes I'm like, man, dude, I just don't know how to play this game. Like, I don't know how to do it. I'm too honest. Anyway, this one started out as a compliment to how much of a genuine
1: guy I find you to be. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> uh, you know, the only reason I hired you is because I I liked hanging out with you. <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't i didn't really look at any of your real (laughs) i'm kidding i did i did but no i mean that's that was you know i was at a stage in my life where that was really important to me and i think you came across as really genuine so and i and i really appreciated that so no i think keep that flame alive man don't play the game but how do you
0: i mean do you find that you need to play the game Mm. And like, is it something that I should get better at? (laughs) I mean, certainly like, I don't need to tell people about, you know, my troubles with my home. Like, like I was up till five in the morning with Mm. my kids. Like that doesn't need to enter every single conversation. Like I'm starting to understand that, that there is a separation, but like, you know, how much of myself do I really
1: need to like subjugate? You know, this is, I think this is getting right to the heart of it, I think. And actually it's getting to the heart of my current journey or my current dilemma where I am right now, my realizations in life and sort of what the pandemic's trying to teach me, I think is this, is that like, I feel like we're storytellers, right? And I think I've been trying to play the game you know, just like everybody else for, well, since I came back from Afghanistan. And the reason, the reason my film did well for that I made in Afghanistan was because there I wasn't playing the game. I was in Afghanistan trying to make a film in a war zone, right. Which, which I guess people connected with. And I didn't learn that lesson until this year, because I think what I'm trying to say is I think people connect to stories and that's the stories we tell, but the stories we also tell about ourselves. And I think, you know, I go into a room or pick up the phone and call a friend and say, Hey, I'm working on this screenplay about a crime family in the suburbs. Isn't it cool? I had been working on a screenplay about a crime family in the suburbs. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it's cool. And they're like, what, isn't that the Sopranos? And I'm like, yeah, but it's better than that. Cause like it's in my neighborhood where I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. It's, it's awesome because it's, Based on my real lived experience, it's not really. I wasn't a part of a crime family, <laughs> but, but, you know, I guess when my point my point is, I'm like, what do, what would people want to hear? What do they want to see? And let me give them that, you know. Right. And so, and then when the pandemic hit, I'm looking around, going, what do I really care about, you know? And what I really care about is, I, I love science fiction and fantasy, just oh, full stop. Awesome. I mean, you know, when my mom. And my dad would take us on camping trips. I'd be literally reading in the car the entire time. And they'd be like, look at the the great scenery. I'm like, mom, there's a dragon and there's a spaceship and it's the coolest thing in the world. I was weird. There's a lot of weird kids like me out there. There's a lot of weird adults now. It's awesome being a nerd is cool again, which is great. Um, Totally. But I realized that that's what I really care about. So I'm now writing a fantasy TV show. And I want to tell you all about it. But the, for, the, for this point, I'm writing a fantasy TV show and I love it. Awesome. <laughs> Literally, I just sit down and I write about a dragon or I write about this sword with ancient runes gleaming in the firelight with eldritch magic. And, you know, I, I love it so much that that comes through. You know, they're like right. when, I talk, when I tell people about it, they're like, wow, that sounds awesome. I'm like, does it? And it sounds awesome because I love it. So it's like I'm pitching myself. The story in this story i don't really have to pitch myself i'm just like of course it's awesome and so i'm just so so excited about it and so i guess to answer your question about should you play the game i mean i i think like being true to yourself trumps everything else if you can't being true to yourself trumps everything else and people really human beings are wired they're we're we're bullshit detectors you know right like that's millions of years of evolution you know we can read micro expressions and like you know we just have this innate sense of of who is this guy and we always suss things out and so like if you're pitching something if you're trying to play the game people just know it and and so you the first person you have to convince is yourself and then once you convince yourself it's easy to convince other people that's what i'm trying to learn this during this pandemic yeah i feel like are we done the podcast now? Is that, that's good, right?
0: <laughs> that's it. That's all we need. We can just, I'm just going to stop the recording and post this it's right good. now. No, I, I remember that sort of distinctly now that you mention it. I remember you having that conversation. You know, when we worked together, you were three years removed from probably what at that point was the, the pinnacle of your career, the height of what you had achieved so far. And I remember you struggling with that of like, I just don't know what people want. Right. And like, I think we all do that to a degree. You know, I was talking to another friend and she's like, when I started really writing something that was honest, that I really connected to, that's when I did my best work, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Exactly. It's hard. It's It's the weirdest thing about how Hollywood's always like, write what you know. And they also say we want the same thing that everyone else has already done. But then when the new kid comes along, they're all gaga over that. And and it's just confusing how to slot yourself in. And so you're basically screwed either way. Either you try try to imitate what other people have done or try to create something new that no one cares about. And so either way, you're screwed. So why not just do what you love? Because then at least you'll be happy while you're doing it. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Yeah, and I think there's something that's really to be said for just – living authentically and moving through the world authentically. And, and also I I think you save yourself a lot of grief by not chasing something that you think somebody else wants at the end of the day, it's just a lot more satisfying to sort of live, you know, your own fucking truth
1: or whatever, you know? Well, exactly. And I think, I think if you, I mean, it's such a slim margin, you know, it's so hard to make it whatever, how everybody's defined that. I guess money is one way, success, fame, whatever. It's prestige. so hard to make it. But prestige, you know? <laughs> you know, there are people out there who, you know, we 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 both know them who are, like, leveraging, wow, Will Smith loves my script, and then, you know, talk to a producer, that producer thing loves my script, and then, you know, sort of amassing some sort of critical mass of external validation right and ultimately i like, god what an existence that is i don't know i don't totally. want know what that existence totally you know yeah so. man i
0: couldn't agree with you more so <laughs> you finish your master's at i don't know i mean where where should we start i mean do you want to start like <laughs> what, when did you get to la what led to la like what the you know where how, how do we get yeah, to yeah. november or october i don't even know what day it is yeah. how do we get here man sure.
1: Well, it's funny. It, it, I could tell you the story that I, I, you know, I sort of have the whole thing down pat because I've, I've done it. Get to pitch so many your bio. People. We got a little pitch, my bio, right. You know, but you know, I don't want to do that. Where you, well, you know what? Let me just do, give you the 10 second version. So, you know, I went to USC film school. I graduated with an MFA in narrative film direction and I wanted to be the next Steven Spielberg. So I came on out in Hollywood and I realized it was a lot harder than I thought it was. So, You know, I felt, but I, but I luckily fell in love with this beautiful British, British diplomat who was posted to Afghanistan. So I was like, you know what? 2008, tough to make it in Hollywood. Let's go check it out. See what it's like. I wanted to visit her. ended up staying for five years. And then I started a company doing documentaries for NGOs and aid organizations, did some stuff for CNN. It was great. And my friend came to visit me and he's like, man, you got to do a narrative film. So we sat down and wrote a narrative film, ended up producing it and I directed it and, uh, we ended up getting nominated for an Academy Award, which was amazing. That was 2013. So that ended up making me come back to L.A. So I've been back in L.A. for the past seven years, you know, writing, directing and making documentaries and, you know, pursuing my dream. Sounds
0: good. All right. The end. Yeah.
1: The end. The
0: end. Um, so you came, did, yeah, you come really straight like from, did you come straight from high school to L.A.?
1: Yeah. So basically, no. So I went to Williams College, which is a liberal arts school in Massachusetts, and they didn't have a film program. So I majored in English okay. literature with a romantic poetry concentration. Beautiful. Um, I know, and I mean I'm such that a sappy romantic. No, I mean it yeah, though. Well, yeah, I mean I like it. It's good, but it is pretty sappy. Sure. Um, yeah, but no. Then I then I you know moved to New York, and I lived in New York for four years. And I got to tell you, this whole conversation we're having right now about black lives matter and privilege and representation in Hollywood and the industry they are in and everything is so important. And it's not something we discussed at all back then, but I mean, the only reason I could even possibly pursue a career in the entertainment industry was because I'm a white dude who went to a really nice college. I mean, it's just the truth. And so I, um, because my first job and I called up an alum from Williams and I'm like, Hey, give me a job. Mm. And they did. So I, you know, my first job was at the sci-fi channel, uh, working in programming there. And then, uh, I, it was just really, it was really corporate. So, um, even though it was in entertainment, it was really just like working in a, in a big office building right. for a corporation.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I thought I love it cause I love sci-fi, but, um, <laughs> didn't really get to do any of it, you know? Sure, you're um, just
0: pushing some papers around.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then I so then I left and started doing independent film work. So I was, you know, working on independent film productions in New York as a grip in an art department, oh, um, cool. PA and all that stuff. Um, which was, you know, an education. And I think everyone should do that for sure, because how we make films is you know, how the sausage is made is really important to know. Um for sure and just also it's really hard to make a living doing that and i think that's important to realize as well i mean it's just it's just it's a it's hard what a fucking you know? grind man yeah those hundred dollar <clears throat>
0: a day gigs two hundred dollar a day gigs mean, like, it's crazy
1: yeah hundred dollar a day, day gigs and it's you know 16 hours right. every day all in pretty right. much and you know, and you don't know when the next gig is coming, so it's 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 tough. So I was also a, a bouncer at the time uh, at a little bar on Bleecker Street. You were a bouncer. I was a bouncer. Wow. And I quit. I quit because uh, I quit on Halloween night when a clown punched me. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> couldn't take it anymore. Um, but luckily, I was I was twenty what twenty three at the time, so I was able to you know get by and no sleep. Um, right. But yeah, then I, I was in New York for years, and I was trying to figure out, well, how, well, what's my path forward, right? You're, you know, PA in the art department. You're working as a grip sometimes. You know, how do you work your way up within the production sort of structure, right? And they really, it's really hard to figure that out, right? Um, I mean, if I want to be a DP, sure, I could, you know, get in the camera department and work my way up that way, but it's. Uh, I didn't want to be DP. I wanted to be a director. Yeah. And there's, it's just really hard. That doesn't come
0: from working on productions. Like there's no, no, you you don't work your way up to that. You become a director by
1: directing basically. Basically. Exactly. And so how do you make that leap? I mean, it's, it's not easy. Um, and the way I decided to tackle it was to apply to grad school and, and and I got into USC and I came out, that's what brought me to Los Angeles in 2002 to go to USC grad school um, which was great.
0: I mean, I've heard that the biggest value in the LA film schools are the connections that you make. Of course, yeah. of course it's the education, but I've heard that really it's, you know, I mean, cause I went to film school in Philly and I don't know anybody out here that went to my school and everybody yeah. who went, who was in my, class, my graduating class, like I would say 95% of them aren't even working in the business anymore. They're like accountants or something or whatever people do when they, I I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. And like, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe this will reach somebody from Temple University, 2005 or six, whenever I stopped going. But, Mm -hmm. uh, have you found that
1: yeah for sure i think you going to usc or ucla that's one of the major draws and it's definitely i do know people who i'm still friends with people who are now in the industry and, and it's great to have those connections for sure um and again it's this sort of privileged pathway where for sure it's, it's a fucking expensive school i mean you know I, i'm still paying off the student loans um but uh you know so it's not available to everybody and and i'm really lucky to be able to do it but no, I think at the time in two thousand and two, I um, I do think that that was sort of a turning point where I didn't have access to any camera equipment because it was the, at that time it was too expensive. So actually going to USC was a logistical move where I, I actually could then use the camera equipment they had to make films, and we were forced to make films. And so I do also think that actually making five films your first semester, you know, yeah. was was really incredibly useful just to dive in and do that and be surrounded by people who can give you feedback and and make and where you can make mistakes and it's okay. They tell you at USC, you know, you're never going to, we're not, we don't allow you because they actually keep the copyright of all the films you make. No shit. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's not true at every school, but at that USC it's true. Up. I know it is. It's a weird special contract they have, but they basically say, since we have the copyright, you're not allowed to post any of your first three or Two years of films you make here, wow. <laughs> anywhere. At least I don't, I don't. I think that might have changed now. But at the time, that was the but the rule, and all of us were up in arms. We're like, but this is the most amazing film anyone's ever made. <laughs> this course. is the magnum opus. It's it. beautiful because you you know you always think your film is amazing because it's you you've, basically because you've worked so hard on it. So it has to be good, or else your work has been wasted. Right. <laughs> um, and then looking back on it a year later, you're like, oh god, thank thank god they. Made me not post that because thank it, God they it, own that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but it allows you to make mistakes and learn, which is I think really necessary. Um, yeah, it
0: seems like a master's program is is way more beneficial than an undergrad program for as far yeah. as film, you know, as far as film school is concerned. But then you know, but then you got to do your four years, and then you know.
1: Well, I also year. think I also think that in in film, unlike other avenues of pursuit in life. I do think that filmmaking is, is, a, is a medium that rewards wisdom um, and age a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if at the age of 18, I would be capable of saying anything in the world. I mean, I don't know. Just for me, I, I was definitely a late bloomer. And so when I went to college, I was like, who am I? What's going on? And so I think after, you know, college and four years in New York, you know, I, I didn't have that much to say, but I I had a little bit more to say than when I was 18. So I think there's that too. It's funny
0: because had you done it at age 18, I bet you would have thought you had some profound things to say, you know, exactly. I mean, I certainly did, but you know, had no fucking means whatsoever to actually like execute anything, you know? Yeah. And certainly the ideas weren't very profound. I think you're absolutely right that it's like, time has definitely made me a better writer, made me a better editor, made me a better filmmaker in general. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just, there's a lot to be said for aging. It's funny because I always thought, I don't know, like in my twenties, it was like, ah, this is, this is life, man. You know? And then you get into your thirties, your mid thirties, your late thirties, and you're like, oh shit, you're only really young for a very small portion of your life Mm -hmm. you know you're old for a really fucking long time yeah i think and that's great
1: that is true i'm so happy to be in my late 30s now like i think it is great i think the transition is not easy no i think i definitely had that transition um of like oh i'm not young anymore now what's the next stage looking like and but i do i do think that there's a shift and I'm just now thinking of this as we speak. So this will be great. It'll be like new discoveries in your podcast. Beautiful. Um, but, uh, but, you know, when you're in your 20s, when I was in my 20s, you know, you're all young and full of gusto and you, you want to make a mark on the world and you're, you know, you're burning like a fire, right? And it's it's um, exciting and that's powerful, you know? But I think what I, at least how I transition is like my superpower now it's just simply persistence. It's just simply the ability to see something and just continue plotting after it until like I right. get there. <laughs> and you know, that wasn't true in my twenties. Like I literally would be like, This is great. Look at that shiny object. Let's do that. And then do it sort of okay. I did it you know, I did an okay job at whatever it was, you know. Um but that was it. And then right. and then I move on to the next thing. And I think now I'm much more able in my waning years <laughs> to, uh, to 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 actually, you know, put the work in and make it good. So, I think that's uh, that that's filmmaking rewards that I think a little bit. Yeah,
0: well. I think it's a really profound point. So, tell me about Afghanistan. I mean, yeah,
1: <laughs> fuck, man, <laughs> fuck. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, what do you want to know? I mean, it basically, I think one thing I I always start and I won't do my, my spiely thing, but one thing I do want you to know is that, you know, Afghanistan is, is an incredibly surprising and unique and wonderful place that isn't my, wasn't what I expected when I got there. And definitely, you know, it's hard to explain. Um, because the news media and sort of the perceptions we have here in America is so skewed of the country sure. it's like backwards and women in burkas, and terrorists and all this stuff and you know it's it's a, it's a country it's a country full of you know millions and millions of people and and you know it's it's got an incredibly rich history so it's not one dimensional like that um a i think that's really important to um to say um, but B it's, it's, uh, it definitely for sure for me, was one of the most life changing experiences in my life for sure. Um, you know, I think that moving to Afghanistan to follow that wonderful woman, um, to Kabul was definitely the most, the best decision I've ever made in my life. I mean, it brought me a lot of pain and hardship for sure, but, uh, but I think I won't, I wouldn't be, sitting here talking to you if i hadn't made that decision so um yeah it definitely there's there's moments in your life that you know will change you and you know will change you and if and sometimes you say "Ah, i can't do that and and i'm glad i said yes to that one so yeah it was great
0: yeah man i think one of the most undervalued Uh, powers we have as human beings is our choice to say yes or no to big decisions. And I I think that a lot of people maybe don't, or at least I've been guilty in the past, certainly of not of passing up on things because I was afraid, I guess, really, is what I'm saying. I was going to fucking go in circles around that, but I think I've definitely (laughs) said no when I should have said yes. And um, yeah, I'm glad you said yes to that. You, uh yeah. I get. Are you like, are you like a stress junkie? Like, uh, I mean, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I even yeah. need to expound on that question. But like, working with you, like, you know, you get fucking revved up, man, when you're like in it. And <laughs> like, I get really revved up when I'm in it too. But like, you were in fucking Afghanistan for five years, like making run and gun documentaries. Like, I feel yeah. like you
1: have to be a bit of a stress junkie, no? Yes, I think that's true. There's definitely, I definitely have that within me, for sure, and I think part of my my struggle in life is to is to to utilize the best aspects of that and not let that destroy me. If that makes sense, yeah. I mean, for I'm sure. just being really honest with you right here. This is crazy. Do you have some sort of superpower? I, um, I some honesty superpower? No, it's true. I mean, I you know, I think I do have a self-destructive tendency um, in my life, and I think a lot of people who go to places like Afghanistan have self-destructive tendencies yeah i know a lot of my journalist friends my business partner for example that we worked that i worked with together for five years in afghanistan on with my company and he was crazier than i was i mean he's the guy who would would go to the front lines i'd be like have have fun jake get some great footage i'll be here in the editing room (laughs) you know um you know as soon as when we we both left around the same time and and he went to syria and was one of the first people into homes. And, and you know, he's just chasing that that front line, those front lines, you know? Yeah. Um, and I saw him and I saw friends of mine were photographers and all that, you oh. know, mercenaries and all those kinds of people, you know, chasing that buzz. Right. And I, I realized how self-destructive it was. And I looked back at myself and I'm like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> um, and so I, I made a conscious choice to, because it, dude, it is... <laughs> thrilling it's like a drug it's like of you course. you know you're you're there it's not necessarily the danger of it i mean that, that fades pretty quickly we get acclimatized pretty quickly to dangerous situations um so i'm not in fight or flight the whole time you know it's not like you're constantly in fight or flight but there's a and and i, and I do not want anyone who's listening to this to think that afghanistan's an incredibly dangerous place it 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 is a country at war, and it's been at war for a long time, and that's caused terrible, untold suffering amongst the Afghan people. Um, But there's a lot of people who write about Afghanistan in a very sensationalist way, um, and I don't want to be guilty of that. Um, And so, you know, my life wasn't in danger every day. It's, you know, I wasn't dodging bullets when I left my house. You know, I, I was living in a small, nice little house in a nice residential neighborhood. And I have, I had wonderful Afghan neighbors and I would have breakfast at the tea house next door. And, you know, I, I would have parties at my house that, you know, people came to and it was a wonderful time full of laughter and merriment mostly, right. you know, at the same time you are living in a, you are living in a war zone. You are trying to, you know, make something, uh, in the world. I think there's an important, there's an importance placed upon the work they wouldn't be here if you're just trying to make a rom-com in Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Um, And so there's that weight, which feels good, you know? Right. Um, But it's also a burden. Um, And so after, you know, so I was definitely living at a level of stress, self-imposed stress and external stress for five years. Um, And you get used to it. You're like, this is the, the new normal. And then, I saw my friends, you know, trying to chase, trying to like a drug, trying to up the dosage, you know? Sure. And, and I was like, I, you know, that, that way leads madness. Right. So I, I tried to come back to LA and, and I got to tell you, cut trying to make that transition back to Los Angeles was probably the hardest time I've ever experienced in my life. It was, you know, not easy. There was a lot of issues with PTSD and by PTSD, I don't mean, you know, diving under a desk when I hear a loud noise, it was like re realizing that nothing can be as important or seemingly important as what I had was giving up. And, you know, the vapidness of the conversations I was hearing around me right. and that would cause great anger within me. Right. Uh, and it, the anger was caused not by justified anger, but by a deep sadness Right. that like, you know of the poverty i'd seen and 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 trying to process that and trying to understand how i as a white man who grew up in a really rich suburb in philadelphia you know can exist in a world where you know there are kids with their legs blown off um and i get to come back to la when i want to you know all of that's wrapped up in in that in that what i call the ptsd yeah. so it was a really, really tough time in my life and age. And I, and I literally had just gotten gone to the Oscars and, 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 you know, oh um, God. it was, uh, yeah, it was tough. So I don't know if what the whole question you asked me, but, um, I sort of meandered to there. This that's doesn't great. Really
0: matter. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's fucking powerful stuff, man. I mean, how could you come back and then have to have a conversation with somebody about, you know, the art department on a Maybelline commercial or something, yeah. you know, some yeah. commercialized
1: capitalistic pursuit. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I think, you know, I don't, you know, I, I definitely want to keep the focus. It's hard to talk about this kind of stuff because, you know, it's, it's like boohoo me, you know, I'm, oh, I'm stressed out, you know?
0: Yeah, but I think
1: but that
0: but I, yeah. I, I'm sorry to interject, but personally mm-hmm. like of course like I think that everybody's experience is relative to them and I think you can do yourself a disservice, the royal you can do yourself a disservice if you discount your experience as not mattering enough or not being important enough or trivializing your problems because that kid had his legs blown off, you know I mean? And that, yeah. I, I understand the instinct to do that, but, and I'm going to get fucking super hippy-dippy here, but, like, y- <laughs> your shit matters too. Your PTSD was really fucking real for you. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. It's true. I don't mean it to, like, true. I don't mean to overstep, and I'm not trying to, like, trample what you're saying, but I do think it's important that, like, your experience matters, man.
1: All experiences matter. <laughs> no, let not go there. No, that's, that, no, that was in poor taste. I, I, and I, and I didn't mean to 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 link it. I don't know. I. It's like that's how I feel, though. I feel like in a way in this conversation that we're having, you know, during the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's like I don't want to focus on myself. I want to like, you know, use. Whatever privilege I I have in my life to 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 try to shift the conversation to the people who haven't been able to been given a platform, you know, and just and and so and so yeah, so I do feel I honestly do feel a little uncomfortable. And this is what's weird about this is that if you would ask me this question seven years ago, man, I would expound you would be listening to me talk about my PTSD and all my experiences in Afghanistan and you know how I was like hanging out with the Afghan national army and the front lines, you know, was there a fight in the Taliban and oh man, isn't that awesome. And it, like I, I would go off on all this stuff seven years ago and you know, I think in inside of me, my, I don't know, my, my, my focus has shifted. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's as important as other things in the world right now. My experience, honestly. You yeah.
0: Know? Uh, pardon whatever is happening in the audio because the Dodgers just won the World Series. I think. I was going to
1: say I'm, I'm under my table because there's fireworks going off outside. <laughs> I'm now speaking to you from underneath my table, and uh, I'm freaking out.
0: Because so. of your PTSD, that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. But no, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think. You're a little bit older than me, and I think maybe what you're describing just speaks to maturity and speaks to where you are in your life right now. You know, I mean, I'm hearing you talk, and I'm like, man, that's like... I don't know. All I want to do is talk about how fucked up I am and, like, how... I have all this shit from my childhood that I'm trying to work through, and I have all this shit from my 20s that I'm trying to work through. Like, and I don't know if that's just, like maybe maybe it's just like narcissism like maybe i'm just like an embarrassing narcissist poor me
1: yeah no i no and i don't think i do agree with you 100 percent that everyone's experience like it, you you live you exist inside of your skull right and your heart and there's no way that you can actually get out of the prison of your body and so like yeah. No, it's, it's really important to make that a, a comfortable place to live. <laughs> right. It's so,
0: like, until that's yeah. an okay place to be, how can mm-hmm. a- anything else be coming from a right. place of purity or, you know?
1: Right. And, and I think that might be what I'm trying to say is that, is it luckily I think now I'm, I am in a good place in my life, you know? And so I don't feel the need to, to sling it out you know I was I was externalizing all of my pain right. back then for sure I was I was saying I was almost yelling it out trying to make people hear me and see me you know um and it, it I, honestly I, I you know I lost some friends during that time because I, I I was I was honestly a little bit of a crazy person um but yeah no I'm, I'm in a much better place in my life now and I think I did go to therapy, um, and uh, you know, I think uh, this year uh, I, I, turn, I, I think I have turned a corner a little bit, um, so so I'm able to really look outward again in a, in a, in a way. aren't I, I mean aren't I, aren't I awesome, Nick?
0: I love therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, no, I do. I actually think you're awesome. I actually fi- i mean i again I'm, I'm, I mean. I think that there are very few truly genuine people and I don't know, you're a sensitive guy, you're a kind guy, you're a big hearted guy. I've always felt a really strong connection to you as a very sensitive person who's like spent my whole life, like trying to find a fucking big brother, you know, somebody who I just like, just just accept me, man. I'm like, I'm good. Right. Right. Like I I got this. Right. You know? And I've always, I don't know. I've always been a really good guy, but. Well, thanks man. No, man. Fuck yeah. Therapy. Please give me all the therapy so I can fucking just be
1: okay with who I am in the day to day. Yeah. Um, one of the things the therapist did say to me when I came back from Afghanistan, because I, I didn't know what was happening to me. I mean, I, I've, I've been really lucky in my life. Really lucky that I, I had a really good upbringing and I had a really wonderful loving family. Yeah. Um, and I think that foundation has really served me well and it, and it's it's it was an awakening to me to see how rare that was in the world. Right. Um and I think I'm now, I'm really thankful for for how my mother and father raised me. But you know, I think after Afghanistan, um you know, I definitely was self-medicating with alcohol for sure. And I think uh, the first thing my therapist said to me, I, I came in and I'm like just unloading on her and tried to explain all this, these issues that, that I touched upon very briefly here. Um, she's like, I can't help you until you stop drinking. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And she said, well, you know, you're ju- you're just trying to, paper over everything you're just covering it up and running away from things and i don't think any therapist has ever said go like stop coming to me <laughs> but right. that's what she did and she was right you know um and so i think you know that that sort of luckily i've gotten a handle on that um aspect of my life which is great so um i think for me it's the you know facing like you say, facing your problems and not running away from them. And for me, the the, the way I ran away from it was to drink, um, that to cover, to, to to deal with my PTSD issues from Afghanistan for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how, how, how much you want to get into this, but, um, I, I actually stopped, uh, five months ago about like fully, full sobriety, no more booze. Yeah. no weed, nothing. I mean, that's great. Yeah. It's, and I don't know if it'll last forever, but in this season, it's really serving to help me get some real fucking clarity on what's underneath the issues and the reasons why I, you know, mm-hmm. here's where I am at age, you know, 36. Like why, where could I have been if I didn't, you know, self-medicate for so long? Right.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, I, I, think that's one reason I brought that up is because I think, you know, last time I talked to you, you were saying that you were doing that. Um, and so I, you know, I think, I think it's really important. I mean, I think everyone should at least feel see what it feels like to be hundred percent sober in life. it's, it's, and show up for life. It's, it's, it's good. Um, especially with you as, you know, having, having your, your family, um, you know, I think right now, I think I'm proud of you, man. That's great.
0: Thanks, man. Yeah, it's funny cuz it it definitely changes, you know, when you have a family. So, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't, you know, age 23 like blacking out and, you know, waking up for brunch yeah. Sunday afternoon to drink all day. But, you know, it was still it was still having an effect on how I was able to move through the world and how I was able to Engage with the world and engage with my own feelings, and you know,
1: yeah, you know, yeah, you know. Well, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. And and it's not just about the, you know, the being drunk or the dealing with the hangover. That's the problem. It's the you know, alcohol is a poison, and it does change the way your brain functions um, over time. Yeah. So it's um, you know, I think, and, and it's just and it is about showing up for life. It's like. I think this is something that I'm really trying to understand now in my life and especially now during the pandemic, but you know, I think we, we, we talked about it earlier this week, but the idea of, you know, being a success or being a failure in life mm-hmm. um, or how you define that or what that means, I think it's related to the stories we tell ourselves, the, um, how we pursue the projects we're pursuing. And I I think it's relevant um, in a way. Well, definitely relevant in my life right now. I've been thinking a lot about it this week. Um, And, you know, in my cold, clear crystal sobriety, (laughs) you know, how, uh,
0: there's nowhere left to go how, when you stop drinking, there's yeah. nowhere left to fucking go, there's nowhere left to
1: go. Nowhere nowhere to go. And especially in the yeah.
0: pandemic, there's nowhere to hide anymore. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> sorry. But it's
1: fucking crazy, dude. I know it's crazy. <laughs> it really is. But it's, uh, but it's also, you know, and so it's not easy, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not easy, but I, I, I tend to think of it as like, you know, it's not what you're putting down is what you're picking up you know what are you trading for it right you're trading the possible you're trading the certainty of going down a path that you've gone down I don't I mean I can't speak for anyone else but you've gone down you know your entire life like you've gotten to a point and for me that point was lying on my floor not able to move trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life, you know, and not understanding how to deal with any of my emotions, you know, and just going, okay, well, I can, I I can go down from here. (laughs) That's terrible. Um, You know, you you put down that life, that downward path and you, and you pick up the possibility, possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility that, there might be something awesome out there so Fuck yeah, man. that's what I'm, how I'm looking at it
0: that's a great perspective so <clears throat> with this breath i fly ten, <laughs> 10 years you've had a documentary in post-production right or 10 years 10 years you've been working on a documentary yeah how I just, I got to start with asking how do you possibly sustain work for (laughs) that period of time? Like for me, like, and I love doc, I love documentary storytelling. I love doc filmmaking. And I just want to be done at a certain point, you know? So tell me about the process of this. Tell me about.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I guess 10 years of your life, Of my life working on this documentary and you know to be clear it wasn't 10 years 40 hours a week of course you know the the process has taken 10 years um i think that's important because every time i i hear a story like that i'm like how is that possible yeah (laughs) slaving away in a dungeon somewhere you know for 10 years of my life it's not the case there's been a lot that's happened in my life
0: (laughs) yeah i mean even asking that question and like having this moment to reflect on that it's actually kind of amazing because it's always been a part of your life and like it'll come back into your life and you'll be working on another project but this thing is always sort of there i actually maybe i completely understand how you've been working on it for 10 years maybe it's fucking awesome
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I should tell you sort of w- what the film is real quickly. Please. I'll give you the little, I mean, this story could take half an hour, but I'll give you the, the, sh- the, the short, real short version. Um, yeah. So basically I'm in Afghanistan and I team up with this amazing, um, these two amazing women, Leslie Knott and Clementine Malpas. Um, to make a film about women's rights, women's rights in Afghanistan. And the European Union uh, was funding, they wanted to make a film about women's rights. So we pitched them a, an, idea, an idea of making a film about women who've been imprisoned in Afghanistan for moral crimes, which is a big problem in Afghanistan. You know, in, in 2001, the you know, international coalition ousted the Taliban from power, and we wrote a constitution with the Afghan government, a new one. Um, which enshrines women, women's rights who we sort of instituted this constitutional system of law um, in the country. So there's courts and there's, you know, judges and all this stuff that follow that law. But it's also a country that's, you know, very tribal and very traditional. So a lot of times the courts will actually follow tribal law, not necessarily Sharia law, but tribal law, okay. um, which is slightly different. Um, and I don't want to get into all of it all of the decisions, but basically, so if you're a woman in Afghanistan and you run away from your husband, for example, you could be in prison for running away from your husband, even though divorce is legal under the constitutional system, you know, mm. um, or if you're raped by someone, you can be in prison for adultery. Wow. As a woman. Um, it seems so, yeah, so unjust. Yeah. Dare I say our original working title was injustice. Oh, wow. Well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is very unjust. That's fucked up. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, so we... we um, the European Union gave us money to make this film. We found two women in prison who had been already been in prison in Afghanistan for these moral crimes. One uh, was this woman named Gulnaz, and she'd been raped by her uncle, and she became pregnant, and that's how the people found out. And the police arrested her uncle for raping her and imprisoned him for raping her. And but imprisoned her for 12 years for, for forced adultery. That was the charge. Um, and then she had his baby on the prison floor and, and, um, and would do anything to protect this young daughter of hers that she was now raising in prison. And, um, the other woman Farida uh, was married off at 13 years old and then suffered 10 years of incredible emotional and physical abuse at the hands of her husband, a man she'd never met until she finally ran away with this younger man, this army officer who she was in love with, and um, they were found and caught and arrested and imprisoned for adultery um, and running away her, for running away from her husband. Um, so we followed these women's stories for <clears throat> three, three, four years. Oh, wow. But, but uh, as they sort of fought for their freedom, in the justice system in Afghanistan. But after a year, we submitted a cut to the European Union, a rough cut of them sort of getting to that point in the story of being in prison and, you know, not knowing what to do with their life or how to, how to uh, what to do. Um, and the European Union decided to shut down the production and shelve the film basically. And we didn't understand why. And it came to light that they were worried about the safety of the women um, which is understandable because if, if you speak out as a woman in this society, you're putting yourself at great danger. Um, you're already in danger from your family and, uh, for, for the shame of the dishonor of what you did um, or what they say you did. But um, if you speak out about it, you know, women are oftentimes killed for the shame of that dishonor. So right. um, valid concern. But we obviously told the women, you know, they knew more than we did how much danger they were in. And, and we, we were very clear about, what the film was and, and they were very eager to, to tell their stories. That was sort of, that was why they were doing the film was to explain their situation. So the world would understand what was going on. And so the, but the European union um, didn't agree. And so they sent representatives into the prisons to try to convince the women to withdraw their consent from the film, oh, wow. which the women refused to do. Um, and then we realized actually that wasn't the real reason. And the real reason was because he, the European union headquarters in Brussels was worried that the film would reflect badly upon their support of the Afghanistan's judicial system because they gave billions of dollars to Afghanistan to run their court system in prisons. And so this, you know, the human rights section of the European union funded our film. And then the big boys came in and said, Whoa, don't do that. So they tried to shell the whole film um, and we realized what was happening. And so we, and they actually ordered us to delete all of our footage. Hmm. Um, we've been filming with these women for about for over a year. And of course, we were just incredibly incensed at that injustice to us, but way more so about the fact that these the European Union would, would try to silence Gulnaz and Frida's voices, you know, right. who had been so courageous in speaking out. So um, so we were not willing to do that. So we actually went to the international media, who picked up the story, and And it became international news and Gulnaz became the face of women's rights in Afghanistan for a brief time. And then my friend Kim Motley, who's an international human rights lawyer, decided to represent her and ended up taking her case all the way to the top to President Karzai, the president of Afghanistan. And he ended up issuing a presidential pardon to Gulnaz and she got out of prison. And after that, the European Union had to relent and they assigned the copyright to us of the film. And so we were finally allowed to keep filming. Of course, at this point we had run out of money. My company producing the film is like, I'm going into debt, paying for lawyers. And it's like, we just have no resources whatsoever. So we've, we do end up finishing the film or finishing shoot filming in Afghanistan um, on credit cards and all this stuff. Mm. Um, but this is all to say, this is one reason it's taken 10 years is because we just, after this whole process were just absolutely exhausted. And we all left Afghanistan. I was going through my PTSD thing and it was just a mess. Um, and so we took about a year off and then ended up picking it back up again. And I ended up um, doing some fundraising through Indiegogo and raising enough money to you know, get an edit together with an editor and going from there slowly, slowly trying to piece the story together over the course of the next four years, basically just as we could. Um, it was not easy. Um, but I guess to answer all of that, to answer your question, which is why was I working on it for so long? Because of the women in this instance, you know,
2: yeah, these women who
1: had, yeah, who had just had such courage to open up and tell us their story. Um, and their story didn't end happily. (laughs) Um, I don't want to ruin the film for you Sure, <laughs> it's gonna come out. It's going to be great, but, uh, unfortunately their story didn't end happily, but it is a thrilling ride and it's, it's, it, you know, perhaps the external factors of their story stories didn't end happily, but the fact that they were able to speak their truth, I think is a victory in and of itself, Right. which is why I'm calling the film with this breath I fly. Um, and so you have to see it when it comes out. To- um, but uh, but yeah it's taken us this long to get to where we can finally you know we have an edit um, it's not finished yet it's a you know almost a locked picture but it's enough to submit to Sundance and the major festivals so which is what we're doing right now
0: sounds amazing I can't I mean I can't wait to see it yeah <laughs> I really can't wait to see it yeah wow.
1: well it's pretty good and, and to talk about like to also talk about how what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation about how telling the truth is the most compelling thing right i think for 10 years i had been uh, i mean i had been editing basically off and on myself but it, we, and we had four editors on the project when we could hire editors we had enough money raise enough money to do so but mm-hmm. i've been doing a lot of the editing myself and trying to tell the story of these two women who had been imprisoned and how they, you know, got out, and part of that story is Gulnaz on the front page of the New York Times and and this international human rights lawyer representing her and you know Farida's husband agreeing to give Farida a divorce to enable her to get out of prison, um, which is the ending of her story. It, and and I'm trying to tell the story. And I just couldn't tell it. I just it just did not work. You're looking at the, the cut, and you're like, "Wow, that's interesting." But what? Right. Like it just it just wasn't working. And then finally, this past year, at the, when March happened and the pandemic happened, I huddled together with Leslie and Clem, and we're like, "Okay, we have to tell our story. We have to tell the story of what actually happened." Right. <laughs> because if we don't tell, and that's why I told you the story um, just now, is if we don't tell that story about the European Union, then it's not truthful and we will the audience understands that even if like they don't know what they're understanding they they know something's wrong and off about the story. And so once we decided to do that, I, it was like opening up a, uh, I don't know a window and letting sunlight in and it just, the story clicked. And all of a sudden, you know, the turn that happens at the midpoint of the film is the European union shutting down the entire production. All of a sudden, like, it becomes much. It basically makes it. It makes sense. The, uh, the makes the women's stories make sense. How did Gulnazic get on the front cover of the New York Times? Well, because we're there, these white people in Afghanistan, really? and we call the New York Times. That's how she got on the cover of the New York Times. That's important to tell people, you know. Um, right. And but it also, you know, opens up a little bit more of a layer to the story about how you know international involvement in. Afghanistan affects the people living there. So anyway, my point is once we real, once we decided to actually tell the truth and, and, and be honest about things, then it just made the story much more, have much more integrity and connect, I think a lot better. So. Yeah. How could
0: you, I mean, yeah, you can't, you can't really skirt that, I guess, try as you may have. Um, Tried. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it becomes an even more densely packed, I mean it's now it's now it now you're seeing the root cause of the deep injustice of it all. Yeah. And it's the moneyed exactly. white interests. Yeah. That allow yeah. all of it to persist. But that's well, not what this podcast it, is about, I guess. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean it and it did to be clear, it didn't cause the injustice, the original sin of why these women are imprisoned. You know, that's thousands of years of tribal culture, but um, you know, I think it illuminates the the limits of the good that people are trying to do, you know. I don't know. In a in a really depressing way, you know? The fact that the European Union would try to just squash this film because of political, you know and they I mean they had good intentions. They're like, well we don't want our the the public to they, they, they were basically saying it's more important to make sure that the Afghanistan's judicial system is seen as working than it is to tell these two women's stories, right. you know? Um, so, they, they, you know, I, I can understand their perspective, but at the same time, it's like, that's not my job. It's not, not working. No. And my job is to, to, to illuminate that. You know, that's why I love being a filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm very
0: i'm very excited to see your documentary and well
1: thanks
0: um it's it's at this point in the conversation I'm, i'm like reflecting a little bit and i feel a little bit humbled i guess by what you were saying earlier and i feel like this you know, I mean, listen to the shit you're doing. Like, the <laughs> shit you're doing really fucking is impactful and really fucking matters. And I feel a little bit selfish for the fact that I want to go down this rabbit hole of exploring, you know, my neuroses and how it informs my work or how it cripples me from doing my work or whatever, whatever. And your perspective from from being you know, maybe a little farther down the road than me or, or whatever it may be has maybe brought me down to earth a little bit in that feeling. And then I I have this other feeling where I'm like, how much of this is actually informed by your upbringing? I mean, mm-hmm. because you mentioned a very stable upbringing and I love both my parents deeply. <laughs> and You know, I'm processing shit right now. So, I mean, you. I guess. Do you think that you're? You know, you're you're boozing and shit. You're self medication. I mean, you came from a lot of stability, right? I mean, just tell (laughs) me a little bit about. I don't know. Where? What? Why why are you a filmmaker?
1: Yeah, I think I know what you're saying, and I think. uh, Well, let me answer this. Let me answer this way. I think. I'd love to talk about your neuroses, Nick. So let's do it. But um, but, but, in terms of my, I do think it's very important in my life and in my story that I had such a loving family and a wonderful upbringing. I think I'm really lucky. I mean, full stop. And I understand that and know that. Um, you know, I was just back at my mom's house uh, for six weeks. I just got back to LA. Um, and I went back to see her and hang out with her and make sure she's doing well during covid and all that stuff um and it was the same house that i she lives in the same house that i grew up in the same house that she and my dad built by hand a couple years before i was born oh wow my dad yeah my dad was an architect and designed it and they built it it's this beautiful frank lloyd wright-esque house on an acre of property in the suburbs of philadelphia and it's just gorgeous and there's this these trees they planted when they moved in, they're now like hundred feet tall. And the maple tree that I climbed as a kid is this beautiful old man in the backyard. And I wrote, I, I built a writing patio out of stone underneath it. And I write out there. I mean, come on. It's so idyllic and nauseating, That's amazing, but man. also so amazing. Well, I mean, it's like, I'm so lucky And my mom is a unique individual and she should, I have to call her, out is one of the most the the most positive influence on my life and i think you know she's the kind of mom when i was a kid she would anything i did she would say samuel you're amazing like literally (laughs) anything i did it didn't matter like that was her response yeah and and you know uh, on some level that s- screwed me up. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> I actually thought I was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: you know what I mean? So But that's I like think- a, that's like such a gift and a curse to feel like you're yeah. amazing and believe that you're amazing.
1: Right, so realizing that I wasn't inherently amazing, that I'd actually would have to work for some things in life was uh, you know screwed me up a little bit but it's much better to come from that direction than the other direction i sure. think yeah of course <laughs> you know? yeah so much more of a blessing than a curse for sure and so i i have to say that my mom you know and even going back to philadelphia she's the same thing like i would i would plant a tree and she'd be like samuel it's the most amazing tree i've ever seen <laughs> And i'm like mom you i love you, <laughs> you <know? laughs> that's awesome but, yeah um what, what were their vocations mm. my mom uh was an art teacher or yeah she's retired now my mm. dad was an architect so right you said architect and, yeah she was an art yeah, teacher but, though that's yeah she was an art teacher and my father passed away when i was 18 which you know was a whole nother that definitely affected my life but oh, yeah, wow um but yeah i mean it, you know very artistic family and the funny thing is <laughs> they were sort of come came of age in the sixties and you know met and got married in sixties they went to peace corps in peru in sixty two I think it was um and then came back in sixty four and it was the whole hippie revolution and all this stuff and and they were they're such squares, so <laughs> <such laughs> squares that you know they're they're hippie adjacent, <laughs> they're right? Hippie friends, but they they themselves are very sort of suburban main suburban Philadelphia straight laced people. Um, you know, very WASPy. Is that where know? they were
0: from? Were they both born in the Philly suburbs?
1: Yeah. My family, Nick, came to America in the 1600s. Oh both
0: shit. Okay.
1: Yeah. Got gotcha. you. And, and, and sort of settled in Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia. So you're and, like deep, yeah, so deep wasp roots. Deep wasp roots. We have our own burial ground and everything. So wow. it's, it's, um yeah. And we're not, not rich. I mean, working class people, like we were like, we were textile manufacturers and stuff like that. And, you know, not, not the elite of the elite for sure, but, sure. Uh, but definitely, definitely, you know, some deep roots of white privilege in, in the suburban Philadelphia environs for sure. Right. Uh, yeah. So well, and generations
0: yeah, that, of generations of being in an area just sort of breeds a certain yeah. level of stability.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which I didn't realize until later in life. Um, and it's, it's, it's definitely a realization. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that definitely helped me the way I am. I mean, I'm blessed, honestly, you know, talking about, you know, anxiety and neuroses and stuff like that. I am really blessed with the, I don't have a natural inclination to anxiety and depression. I don't. My, oh, natural, amazing. State is, yeah, my natural state is is optimistic and positive. And I think that does come from my mom. Um, and that, that's why it was such a, such a journey for me to, Go into those depths um, and to sort of find myself there after being in Afghanistan and going, What is this? Oh, this must be that. Right. (laughs) You know? Um, So I get it. Um, And it's also given me a a much better perspective on how lucky I actually am. So,
0: yeah, it's awesome. But I mean, you know, I think you're uh, the fact that you're so acutely aware of it is is encouraging, I guess, to me or noble. I don't fucking, I can't figure out the right adjective for it, but you could very easily not be aware of it and just yeah. be moving through the world as that guy with that background, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think I was that guy for sure. Right. Before, you right. know, and I, and I, and I, I, sometimes I, I, yeah, blissfully unaware, but you know, th- this brings me to something that actually I really want to talk to you about. And and I think this is this is the the idea of like I mentioned earlier the success and failure idea. I think the reason I'm bringing it up is because I think it relates to maybe what you want to talk about in a way. Let me just just bear with me here for a second. Basically, I had a really interesting relationship with success and failure in my life because you know as you said I had been nominated for an Oscar and that's legitimately an external great success, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but I've always, and I've only just come to realize this in the past few months and try to figure out how to deal with it. Is it like, I've, why am I not at the age of 44 still not at a better stage in my career? I'm still, I'm, I'm still hustling. I'm still trying to figure out where my next rent check is coming from. I'm still trying to figure out like, you know, I haven't done, the feature film that, you know, is when Sundance and, and, you know, I have, I don't have the series on Netflix. I don't have the, I don't, I feel like I should be further along in my life than I am right now, you know? And yes, there has been, I do feel like my five years in Afghanistan was sort of like a, someone's like excised it from my life and lifted it out. And it's like a, it's like a chunk of my life that was just this crazy weird beer off to some crazy sidetrack and then try to get back on the rails of my regular life. And it took me some time. So yeah, I give myself that excuse for sure. But I think what I've realized in the past month or so is that, and this is a revelation, this is going to blow your mind. I think I've constrained my failure and I've constrained my success within parameters that I could live with. Now, if that makes any sense, like basically I have taken on only enough that I could not totally fail. Of course. And not succeed, you know? And I think, so for example, you know, you write the script and you do a pretty damn good job on it. It's good. And you're like, well, I wrote a pretty damn good script. And you send it out and people say, it's pretty damn good, but we're not going to do it. And you're like, well, you know, I tried my best, but oh, well. Or or you succeed and you get the, or, or you do succeed, you know, you do the thing, even get nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And you don't then follow it up with, you don't like capitalizing success. You sort of constrain it. You're like, okay, that's enough. That's as, that's as much as I can live with. And I think a lot of that in my life has been fear, like you were saying earlier, right? Fear. Yeah. And it's like, what happens if I actually try, right? And I think that's the biggest part. It's like, I, I try only, I, I do the best I can, you know? Yeah. And, and then if I fail, well, I try. I give it the good old college try, you know? Yeah. Whereas if I actually like, really put my heart and my soul into something and i tried and then i failed oh boy (laughs) man that would really really screw me up you know so i don't do it right you know and i think a lot of us don't do it a lot of us are like okay i can't put that i can't i can't deal with that i can't i can't so you don't do it and i think what i've realized in the past few months and especially you know you know, waking up every morning stone cold sober and in a pandemic and not hanging yeah. out with anyone and just trying to figure out what to do is like, well, what's the, what's the worst that could possibly happen? You know? Right. You put all of your energy into something and you fail. So what? You know? Exactly. It's like, whereas the best thing that could happen is you, you, you succeed. And even that's scary to be honest, because then what do you do? You know, then you have to like, live up to that success and do the next one or, or, or inhabit a body and a person that actually deserves that success. Exactly. Right. So that's hard, (laughs) but that's, I think that that's something I've been really thinking about the last few months is that, is that like, and that's why, like I was saying at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, writing this fantasy script I really care about it and I love it. And I'm trying my hardest to make it work. And it's really scary because if it does work, I'm going to have to do it. And
0: it could be the thing, man. Yeah, it could be, it could be the thing. And then you're going to have to just be okay with you as a big success and what that actually means. Right. And you're,
1: yeah, it's, yeah, go on.
0: But you're doing, I mean, you're doing all the things right now to prepare yourself for that. I mean, you're, you're getting your mind to that place of being able to encounter everything. Yeah. Clear eyed.
1: Exactly. And I think that's the most important thing that I think that I've realized in the past, as I've been grappling with this idea, I'm like, Oh my God. Cause I, cause if you had asked me five years ago, if you, even if, even in the depths of my depression, if you had said, Hey, have you ever failed in anything? I would have just looked you straight in the eye and said, no, nope, never failed in anything. Everything I've tried, I've succeeded in. What an right. asshole. Right. I mean, come on, Sam. <laughs> you know, obviously I've never, obviously I wrote, like I just I just told you, I wrote a script that I sent out and didn't get made. That's a failure. Right. <laughs> but I didn't recognize that. I didn't say, I am such. An, I was such an arrogant asshole. And I was like, no, I, I've i never failed. You know, right. I've, everything I've tried, I've succeeded in. And, and that was a way of just protecting myself from the actual fear. And so, um, and so, what you what you're saying is like preparing yourself for the, preparing the ground for. And, w- and what's interesting to me, and this is going to be like some Zen shit, man. That's what we're all there, about here. There is no difference between success or failure. <laughs> that's what I've realized in the past. It, that's what I've realized is that they're the same, and they're the same because. The only, the only success that actually matters is knowing that you've tried your hardest. This, it, and that sounds trite, but, n- but it, it's really profound. I don't think knowing it's true at all. Tried. It isn't as, as long as you know that, as long as you put all of your energy and all of your effort and all of your soul and heart into something, if other people look at it and judge it as success, great. If other people look at it as, judge as a failure, great. It doesn't matter. Right. You know? And how so do you think, feel? I, it's how do you feel. Right. right. Exactly. And so I think changing that framework and and allowing yourself to truly live in that in that art <laughs> for lack of a that, to be pretentious. Um, I think is, is 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 hard but important. And so yeah, preparing the ground for that is the work. Exactly. You know?
0: Cause then everything else kind of follows. And I think that, or I hope it will, or maybe it will. I don't know. But if it doesn't, it doesn't matter that. I mean, and I think that's kind of what you're saying too. It's like, if the ground is fertile, if you've prepped the soil and you work really hard on sowing the fucking seeds, And they grow and they're beautiful, but they don't like bear the fruit that maybe 10 (laughs) years ago you anticipated they would if you did all of this work. It doesn't matter because where the, what's most gratifying is the work. And what's most gratifying is being like, okay with who you are and where you're at and the space you take up. Mm-hmm. not to get all fucking you Couldn't know i said it
1: better myself exactly you know
0: <laughs> but it is crazy yeah. like i was just thinking about you know your oscar nomination and like the fact that like you're still grinding all these years yeah. later it's like at first glance i'm like geez, it's like really fucking disheartening man like this guy was like right at the door and like, why didn't his career like take off in a huge way? And then, you know, I know I have other friends like first film into Sundance first film, like a a lot of acclaim in the festival circuit. And it didn't immediately breed the success that we all in this business think it will breed if you get to that level. And so I then really think that it's thrilling that you still do it and then you're still on your grind and that your, your, you, your passion hasn't died at all. Yeah. And like, that's exciting and that's encouraging to me, you know, like you were, you were right at the door and you're still fucking doing it.
1: Well, good. I'm glad it's encouraging. Cause you know, I, there's always, it's not easy, you know? Well and right how do i, do, I mean how, dark night to the soul for sure um but yeah i think i think that's i think reframing in terms of it's you know if 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 you get into doing this film stuff or anything any art you know for the gallery opening or the premiere then you're doing it for wrong reasons you know right like, I, I i don't know i i feel like i feel like uh Oof. I think the reason I I didn't because I've asked myself that question is to yeah what happened in 2013 why didn't I get success then and I think the answer is pretty well there's a couple answers one is I was totally screwed up emotionally right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and, all, and transitioning out of, you know, shutting down my company in Afghanistan and trying to figure out how to move back to LA, all that stuff. But at the same time, I think I wasn't, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't prepared the ground, you know, like going into it, like that's, a, and that's what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation as well, going into a room and saying to someone, I want to do this. I thought I was doing that, but I wasn't. I was going to room and saying, "Hey, do you think I should do this? Right? What do you think about this project? Is this is sort of cool, isn't it? Right?" And that's that's how I was approaching things because I, you know, I, I, I was, I, I was comfortable doing my thing in Afghanistan, but it was weird coming back here and trying to figure out how to play the game, like we say. And so I was trying to do that, and and then I think you know, I just, uh, I just, you know, I'm developing a new documentary now, um, about evangelicals and the environment, environmental movement. Um, and I'm just passionate about it. I'm like, I'm so fascinated in the subject. And so, so like when I, when I talk to people about it, they get excited too. And so it's not me asking them for approval. It's me saying, Hey, you want to go on this journey with me? It's exciting. And that's just, just that shift is different. You can't do that shift unless you, you're, you've, you've, pave the ground you know right you, you know it's it, it and it seems such like such a subtle thing but it's 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 everything it's the thing
0: I don't, and yeah? i don't i don't think it's subtle at all i mean it sounds subtle and it can be put into very plain words but it i mean depending on where you find yourself what station in life at any given point when you decide that that's what you need to do it's like it requires a herculean effort you know Mhm, as it may sound. So, a new documentary about evangelicals <laughs> and the environment. Can I can you tell me more?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's so, yeah, so evangelicals,
0: sorry. Cuz my yeah. when I hear that I'm like, well, they just burn it all to the ground cuz that just means that Jesus will come sooner, right? And then we'll all go to heaven, uh, at least us, the chosen ones, right? Yeah exactly
1: right. well that's that's actually you're doing my pitch for Bloody me i fuckers. mean that's basically that's this is and actually that's actually part of the theological argument um against uh global warming or against caring about global warming right. is that evangelical theology is an apocalyptic theology so you know there are die-hard evangelicals who do very much believe in the rapture. And so anything that can hasten that day is good, including extracting fossil fuels and destroying the environment for sure. Wow. But there's also this really interesting political history about how the religious right got together with the hard right, conservative political ideology and basically convinced evangelicals to vote as a bloc for the Republican party. And part of that was you know, luring them with social issues and then lumping the environment into all that, which has now become part of the identity politics of, of the evangelicals in a really deep way. Um, and I, I found out this history through a podcast my friend um, Greg did uh, about this guy named Richard Sizick, um, who was who used to be the head of the National Association for Evangelicals. And this is what kicked me. It was 20 years ago evangelicals almost became the face of the environmental movement. I mean, and it it literally almost happened. And it makes sense if you think about it, because God in Genesis, the first chapter said, you know, I give dominion of the earth to you over the, you know, everything that creepeth, the crawleth of the land, the fowls in the air, um, you know, and you know, you, you humans have dominion over it. And that means, should mean, that we ha- we're shepherds over God's creation, right. right? And then if you go to uh, the New Testament, Jesus tells us to take care of our neighbor as we would ourselves and care for the least fortunate among us. And, of course, that means protecting the home we live in right. <laughs> together. You know what I mean? So, um, and so that, there's, a, there's a real important theological argument for the environmentalism within faith. Right. Um, and yet it's the, uh, it's been co-opted. Right. And so and then I started doing some more digging and I'm like, wait a second. And, there, and there's all these young evangelicals who are like 21 years old who are going out there, who are raised in this new world of, you know, global warming and, and social justice and racial justice. And, you know, which is all part of Jesus's teachings, you know, um, Of course and and of course environmental uh degradation affects those most poor among us um and the minority communities and so they're taking up the charge in a real faith-based way to try to take care of the planet and they have to convince their older generation their parents who have been steeped in 40 years of republican right-wing ideology that it matters. And so that's the fight that's interesting. And that's what a cool doc. That's what the documentary is about. That's like,
0: so, just to hear that though is unbelievably encouraging and gives me so much fucking hope right? because I think to a man, if you told them that the young evangelicals are actually trying to push a change in their ideology towards actual, <laughs> you know caring yeah. about the earth and understanding that we're all made up of the same goddamn cells like mm. that's yeah. i mean fuck if anything could give you hope on october 27th 2020
1: uh, yeah that's it oh exactly exactly and it's a huge it's a huge generational shift right yeah uh, because you, know, you can see it out your front door now you know right and i think and I think it's, what's interesting, most well, all of the young evangelicals I talked to, as I was doing my research, had traveled abroad, and that's also a big part of it. We're so insulated in this country, yeah, into our ideological corners, and you know the news that we listen to, and the people that we surround ourselves with, and as soon as you, and that's what happened to me when I went to Afghanistan as well. Is that as soon as you live another perspective, man, everything becomes so much more clear. And so all these young evangelicals, you know, it's, it's so funny to me <laughs> when, and I don't want to get too political on this podcast, but it's so funny to me when right wing conservatives say, why is it that all universities are filled with liberals? And it's like, well, because they learn shit. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and when you learn shit about the world, then you realize that, Things matter, like caring for marginalized communities and, you know, doing the things that liberals do well, like that. I, I mean, know. look,
0: the, the that party has spent decades disincentivizing education yeah. so that they can continue to bombard their messaging over the airwaves. And that's all the education that their intended voter will ever have.
1: So of course, right? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And oh, and, and, cool. and, and 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 you know, it, I, I mean, if we go into politics, I I I, I I'll explode. But um, yeah, yeah, we, that's not two we weeks right. to the, the most important election of our lifetimes. Um, but you know, I think that's that's all, what I'm trying to get at in this documentary is that you know, the human brain, the human, it's so fragile and it can be swayed so. I don't know, fundamentally, um, and e- looking at a faith group like evangelicals who, you know, define who they are as human beings by the relationship to Jesus Christ. And, and that can be co-opted and yeah. has been so easy, not, not easily, but so well, <laughs> so skillfully by right. the, the right wing of this, in this country, in the politics that, you know, it's fascinating to, act, and then, then to see like these younger kids waking up and going, wait a second, let's actually read the Bible and look at what Jesus says. Dad, you're wrong. I mean, that's, that's, that's Oof. huge, you know? So yeah, man. I think that, I think it's a good, I think, I think hopefully it'll be an important documentary if I can actually just explain that or express that somehow.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, it's, I don't know the the religion and the god shit it keeps re- coming back up in my life and uh, on the podcast weirdly. Um here and there, you know. Uh, you were raised Catholic, right? I was raised Catholic, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, my parents well, were my parents were vegans in the 70s. So like they and mm-hmm. you know they fucking like crystal healers and shit you know like they were like very they were very much hippies and yet they were steeped in you know roman catholicism and both sides of my family are, i'm like i'm third generation italian american like you know so there's all that shit that comes along with it
1: let me blow your mind then i'm gonna blow your mind because this is gonna be part of my documentary (coughs) are you okay are you ready for your mind to be blown i'm ready for my mind to be blown for sure all right so so Not only am I going to talk about, or do I want to talk about, you know, these kids who are trying to change the world and also the politics of how we got here to this current moment in political life, but I also want to talk about the 500 year old theological history (laughs) of the evangelical faith. And it's all tied and it's all rooted in Catholicism and it's rooted, check this out, in a papal edict that was issued in 1493 and in that in that which is the date's important because it was one year after christopher columbus discovered america right right? who's italian just fyi Um,
0: (laughs) yeah everybody's aware yeah (laughs) i'm just just,
1: just, (laughs) just screwing you but um but yeah no literally for one year after columbus's quote-unquote discovered America. I wasn't calling you
0: a fucking guy for the record.
1: I was calling Columbus a fucking guy. I know, I know. Um, But the the Pope issued this edict called the Doctrine of Discovery, which basically says if a Christian monarch or his representatives um, discover a new land, they have the God-given right to subjugate that land and enslave its peoples perfect um, yeah and so the How doctrine convenient. discovery paved the way for you know the colonization of america colonization in general really and um wow and and then you know and then that led directly to in the 1800s to a concept called manifest destiny which is you know sure. in, in america we 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 have all the rights to lands in the west because we're they were granted by god okay. which actually comes from this 1493 edict and that gave rise to american exceptionalism which is a core feature of evangelical theology as well as this thing called the dominion mandate which i don't know if we want to go too crazy but this basically it says that we have evangelicals themselves or get god have the god-given right the god-given command to basically rule over the world politically um and and it's 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 a a sub theology it's a sect i mean people like mike pence believe in it um but it's like but it all comes from this 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 doctrine of discovery and so there's a really interesting theological history if you're a catholic so watch the film
0: yeah um again i'm excited for that as well and i don't i mean i guess culturally i identify as catholic but i was only I, i was only in the you know, after school church program to get confirmed when I was 13. And then there was a rap on, you know, my Catholicism, but it's definitely in there somewhere. But what I was actually going to say is like, I feel like I've spent, I spent a great deal of my adulthood recoiling from Christianity and like, God, Jesus, any of that shit, it it you know, just kind of send me in the other direction, you know, because, Because it is so wrapped up in politics. And it's so wrapped up in, I mean, fucking dominion over others. Like, it's so wrapped up in in a lot of nefarious means. Mm -hmm. And a good friend of mine is a Christian. And we've had some extensive conversations. And I, I remember early on, it was kind of like one of those things that I just didn't really want to talk about, you know, cause I was like, what is this? What does this actually mean for him? And what does it mean for our friendship that I'm so agnostic and whatever. And then, you know, you get to talk and it's like pure Christianity at, at its core is really about Exactly what you described in Genesis. I mean, it's really about exactly what you described in the New Testament. It's really about caring for one another and caring for the earth. And that is the core tenet of it. Yeah. It's just been so fucking distorted.
1: Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating to me is that, you know, I was raised Presbyterian and I refused to be confirmed at the age of 13. Uh, because I was like, "Screw this!" I'd read the Bible. I was like, "This, this is crazy." Yeah. You know? Um, but you know, then I went to college and I started taking a lot of philosophy classes and philosophy religion classes and all the things that we grapple with as human beings when we look past the limits of our of our understanding, we look into that void. What do we see, and how do we reconcile that? nihilism that unknowingness and you know like we talked about before we're trapped in these little meat puppets and so like you know how do we how how do we make sense of the limits of understanding that's what philosophers have been grappling with you know for centuries and that's what the bible grapples with and you know the answer is god but if you actually read faith is a really important Thing, I think. And faith exists within doubt, at least in my my interpretation of it and Kierkegaard's interpretation of it, right. great German philosopher, is that you know, the knight of faith can only be a faithful man when he has faith in the face of doubt. Um, it's ineffable. It's something that you cannot pin down, just like Yahweh, the Old Testament God, is, is unknowable by man. And that's why he had to send his only son, Jesus, so that we could actually understand what the hell he was talking about um as a bridge of understanding you know but like i'm getting a little deep here in theology Please but like the, the the all the stuff we're talking about here like the defining you know laying the ground and defining success and what it means to have anxiety and and you know what it means to, to have a mom who praises you all the time and like all that stuff is 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 answerable within the structures of faith right um, and the problem is you know Jesus Christ was, was a great dude you know um, and the problem is I think uh, is that we're limited in our understanding as human beings and I think that's where all the problems come in you know oh totally like, evangelicals i I don't have a problem with evangelicals but i do have a problem with using the evangelical faith to advance commercial you know capitalistic right-wing issues like digging fossil fuels out of the ground which will destroy our planet and convincing evangelicals that that's what jesus wanted i mean what you know like you know, so I, th- I think it's, it's and, and, that, and that's why I think, sorry to go on a little high horse here, but no, that's please. why to be a knight of faith, like Kierkegaard says, you know, a knight like with a sword and armor, to be a knight of faith means you have to be strong in your faith. You have to stand up and say, hey, I trust God to, 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 to direct me in my thoughts and actions. And to do that, you have to stare into the abyss, like Nietzsche said. I stare to the abyss, the abyss also stares into you. You know, that's a, that's a terrifying place to, to to live. Right. And so if you can have the strength to, to live in that doubt and to live in that, like, I don't know the answers, but I trust God to get me through. That is the night of faith. That's what we should all aspire to as religious people. Not, I'm not saying I'm religious, but I, I do feel strong kinship to that concept. And I think the problem is that dogma creeps in and, and, and we don't, engage with our faith in that active way that we need to, in order to become fully realized human beings there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But there's this, there's this, there's some young quote that I'm going to paraphrase, but it's something along the lines of like, if a man doesn't find faith by his forties, he's in trouble. And I'm you know, after years sort of just like rolling around with this shit and, and, and trying to kick it away from me, like I'm finally coming to understand that I'm the one who gets to define what God means to me. Yeah. And I'm the one who gets to define what higher power means to me. And, I'm the only person who's going to let dogma creep into it, you know, mm-hmm. but it, but it's, it, it feels like it, it was unfairly taken from me, you know, Christianity has been taken, you know, in a lot of ways right. commercially. Um. So no, this is like, it's like a perfect time to hear you say all these beautiful things and you know, yeah, it's encouraging yeah. to hear. I think faith is really important and I'm finally starting to understand that, which is fucking crazy. And how much it's about just letting go.
1: Yeah. Letting go. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good lesson for all, all of uh, if we, if like, we have such ego, you know, in our lives, we're like, no, I know the right path or I, man, just let go you know
0: self-righteousness too like i know yeah. the right path for me and i'm gonna tell you what the right path is for you <laughs>
1: right
0: right how exactly. fucked up is
1: that yeah that's what jesus was trying to tell us just let that slip away you know <laughs> um man it's not easy. i've never read yeah. i've never read the bible man read it it's great it's awesome yeah it's really cool it's like it's screwy it's screwed up though man i'm telling mm-hmm. you it's like it's it's weird it's like it, I, I, i'm Read the book of Ruth, man. It's like you're back in Afghanistan. It's like Ruth is married off to at the age of 13, um, basically sold and raped, and it's it's like screwed up. And like I, someone was reading the book of Ruth at a bat mitzvah, I think it was last Hmm. year. I was like, that's a weird thing to read about. Anyway, um, the Bible's screwed up. It's like it's a, it's a very screwed up document, but also has has a it's lasted so long as it's great it has great wisdom. So
0: I don't even know where to go from here.
1: (laughs) Um I don't either man, but uh you know I think it's really good to talk to you. And I feel like I feel like we didn't talk enough about your uh your anxiety.
0: Oh I think we talked plenty about it. I think that (laughs) it's an exhausting and exhaustively discussed topic and i think we touched on it plenty i my only regret as i look at the fact that we've been doing this for coming up on two hours is i really wanted to talk to you about like writing and like fuck how do you like when that first idea comes like how do you how do you move forward? You know, like all yeah. that shit. But we can
1: talk about that for a second if you want. I mean, like, you can so hear an editor, right? You can edit it in anywhere. It's
0: true, and also this can be a bookend. I don't know. We can, this could come after the fucking deep theological detour, sure. which was m- not even a detour, m- more than welcome and very <laughs> yeah. much um, appreciated. So let me just preface by saying that thus far, I've written. A short film that I directed.
1: Which is good. Which is good.
0: What's yeah. that?
1: I saw it. It was good.
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah. It was a time in my life. And I have a pilot and a couple other, I think I have two other episodes that were of this show that I'm working on that was co written. And as of now, I have about, I don't know, 30 something pages of a feature. And yeah, so I've never completed a feature. I've never completed uh, an hour long uh, pilot or a 60 minute, whatever the fuck they want to call it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I got all these fucking ideas, man. I got shit bouncing around in my brain. Like I got to tell that story Mm -hmm. about, you know, the fucking time I ended up on a plane to Kansas City and Whatever. I I have some yeah. stories to tell. I've lived a, a pretty wild life and, um, it's not even that, like I, you know, m- my mom will tell me stories about like her immigrant grandparents and I'm like, Oh fuck. Like I, I think if I could start to put some of these pieces together, I could really write something that is good and relatable and connects with people. But, I Uh I get stuck at jump street, man. It's hard for me to like figure out how to put one foot in front of the other. And like, I'm hopeful that when I get this feature that I'm currently working on, that when I, when I get a fucking first draft of something finally written, like I really am hopeful that this is the thing that I'm like, all right. And now I just need to work out my process and I can fucking repeat this again.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I look, I do. First of all, I do think it's additive. I do. I think it's not like a fluke. It's not like you go, Oh look, I did one. Now I'm back at square one. There's a lot of writers who say that and, and that's true in some way, but I think the more you write, the better you get at writing. Right. Like just full stop. Like it's a skill like anything else. I don't think you're innately. Some are better. Than, some people are better than others at, you know, sitting down and writing something, but it's a skill. Sure. It's, not, it's not like a craft. Stuff. To craft. Yeah. Exactly. Um yeah, and look, I mean I love talking about writing and we can do a whole podcast on it. it, But I think what I I'd like to you know, I'm all into structure. I love talking about structure and I can talk about structure for hours and how, you know, you have to have the inside incident on in the first eight to ten pages and you know, then you have to have the call to action and you know what is the problem the character is facing that the second act is going to be involved with and the steps you know the rising action and the midpoint you know i could talk about all that stuff i love all that stuff that's that's important stuff to talk about and i think um uh i think writers especially writers for scripts film scripts should know all that stuff there's books out there like
0: what? Sorry, I was going to say, I wonder if I should study that stuff more and feel like I, I actually that, have a better,
1: firmer handle on that stuff. I think so. I think, I think it's important to at least to familiarize, familiarize yourself with that stuff. I think it's because it is true that in Hollywood, well, A, A, there's a logistical reason, and the logistical reason is simple. It's any script anyone is ever going to consider is going to be read by someone who studied that shit. Right. That's just, that's just the way it is. So like, there's script readers out there who do coverage, and guess what? They've all read Save the Cat, and they've all, they all know the script structure, and so they'll grade your script based on how well you follow it. So like, there's, like, there's like, which is screwed up, but it's just the way it is right now. Um, it's the way it's been for a while. Yeah. So there's a logistical reason to follow that in some ways, you know? So I think screenwriters should familiarize themselves with the structure of how screenplays are written in Hollywood, just because it's a craft, yeah, but I think beyond that, like you know it's also really hard to follow the structure, like it, you know you, i I know it back to forward, but I, I still have s- struggle going, wait, what should happen right now, and how do I make this character do it like what ha-? you know and, and and so, if you follow the structure blindly, you're gonna come up with a pretty anemic script as derivative, it's just that's the way it is, so it's like you know which I have written before, yeah. you know, I've written, I'm like, Oh, this is perfect. On page 45, the midpoint turn happens. Yay. <laughs> you know? I did it. This is, this is, the script is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm going to get an A. Right. Exactly. And, and everyone's like, well, and the reason they say, well, is because character is king. I mean, it's just, and, and this is something that I think that uh, this is the one thing I'd like to impart, if I can impart anything, is that everything flows from character. And that's the structure flows from character as well. And right. I think there's, and that that's partly a craft thing. Like part of the, a lot of these screenwriting books talk about the external goal and the internal goal. And, the sure. want and the need of the character, and how those the external goal, the internal goal flips you know the second act, and then he has to resolve the internal goal, which is caused by a wound some, somewhere in his in the character's past that he has to then fi- finally open up and understand what it is to just to heal it, and that and that and that's what the third act's about. Yeah, okay, all that stuff that's in the books, you know what I mean? Yeah, but like, but I think what what really got me going and. This is I can talk about this because I'm writing a fantasy script right now, and the reason I'm loving it so much, one reason I'm loving it is because I'm allowed to make it awesome because I'm adapting it <laughs> I'm adapting it from a novel and so like so for the first time i don't sit I don't sit there and go, ooh, I gotta fit this into this structure thing I'm like the the author of the book has already done all the hard work about who this guy is, and, and I fell in love with the character that he wrote, right? right. So my job is to translate that into, into, into film form. Um, but whereas I, if I started out as a blank, on a blank page, right? Here's what, here's, here's what happens, just real quick. Ringel, who's our hero, is gay. What's the
0: name of sorry what's the name of the i don't know if you said it two hours ago but
1: yeah the name of the uh the series is called a land fit for heroes okay Um, and it is written by an author named richard k morgan um and he's a pretty awesome dude he wrote uh, a lot of science fiction including altered carbon and a whole bunch of other books but he wrote this great fantasy trilogy um and his uh his hero is this gay swordsman and I love him so much. And basically he's his wound is that, you know, in the society he lives in in the past when and our society, because all great fantasy and science fiction mirrors the society we live in. Being gay is reviled. you know, it's 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 uh, in the society is reviled and punishable by death in mm. the world that Ringo lives in. And his lover when he was fourteen was was, was was executed mm. um so he hates the laws of men and laws that he's and he's he's from a noble family so he's he was spared because he's a noble but he's very raging against the world right and so like he's very self-destructive because he has nowhere for that rage to to go and that's sort of i identify with that because of my time in that you know being self-destructive and i like, can't and stuff like that sure. but anyway what happens is this this this, this threat comes back these these beautiful fae sorcerers elven race of evil demons basically come back and try to take back the world that was once theirs and um our hero falls in love with the their leader and has this great gay love affair with him and and then has to choose at the end of the first book whether or not to you know, their plan is to subjugate the human race. And so he has to then kill his lover to save humanity, which he hates because they've rejected him because he's gay. So I just gave away the whole book. But watch the series. It's going to be great. Um, but my point is, like, the fact, like, I would never in a million years write, if I was starting from scratch, Right? you know, and then Rangel fucks the alien demon. Right. <laughs> you know, like what? Right. But the way Richard writes it, it's just so perfect because, of course, Ringo would fuck the alien demon. Like he's doing it because he—that's who he is. Like he wants to see how far he can push it. He wants to destroy himself. He wants to—he wants to, you know, be, because it, and it—it it, it just makes sense emotionally. So, like, you know, I have the—I have the freedom to 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 write that because guess what? Richard wrote it. It's great. Right. I love it. my point is like starting from character i mean you know who getting a real good sense of who Ringel is and what his wound is and what like what why he's doing what he's doing and then everything else flows from that like if he's confronted by this situation how is he going to act well he's going to act this way because that's who he is you know sure um and that drives the narrative and the structure of the narrative forward um i i don't think i don't necessarily think that is helpful if you're going to get some advice on how to write your screenplay but <laughs> no, it's,
0: it's so funny though because like my first where i immediately go is like oh man adaptation sounds really fucking fun like maybe that's yeah the, maybe that's what i need to do is like option something and then just write an yeah. adaptation like that's how i'll crack this fucking code you know because yeah. A human instinct like, is to look for a shortcut, I guess. But I keep banging yeah, my head against contest. the fucking wall, man. Yeah. And I'm going to get this thing done and, you know, get another thing done after it. But I think like what yeah. you were saying earlier about it being an additive process, like even on page 35 of this script, I'm like, Oh, now, now this voice actually sounds authentic. Like you, mm-hmm. you're getting repetitions and like, some real authenticity is coming through or like, I'm a little bit more confident in the way that I'm writing action lines or whatever it may be. Technically, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it is, uh, excuse me. I think it is additive. And I think, look, I, I think you should adapt something. I think, I think I was batting my head against a wall trying to figure out how to write something original. Yeah. Honestly, I just, everything I was writing was derivative. Everything I was writing, I, I wasn't courageous enough to actually go crazy. And right. and what's been so crazy about writing this is that I did a reading a table read last week just cuz and and all, that's also by the way something we talked about earlier you know trying to do the best and I would never have done a table read before if I if I was like oh this is good enough here you go try it read it you know I'm like trying to make this as best as i possibly can yeah, anyway so I did I did a table read and the lines that got people most excited were the lines I would never have written ever If I was writing it from scratch, it was lines that Richard had written in the book that I just was like, this is too crazy for people to read. Like, it's too crazy, you know? And then you write it and people read it and they're like, this is what makes me love the character. I'm like, well, yeah, that's what made me love the character too, you know, but I would never have done it on my own. So like, I, I don't think it's necessarily that you have to be an original writer. I feel like there's a, there's a great skill in adapting someone's work you love. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I don't think I'm a good original writer. I don't think I have the courage or the, the capacity to come up with something unique and wonderful. Yet. Out of my own head. Yet. You know? Yeah. 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 But I, I, I can adapt. Like I'm a good reader. I, I majored in English literature.
0: Which is amazing. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. I wish I had a, a bit of a stronger foundation. I, I I frankly wish that I had taken my school years a little more seriously. I think I was really hamstrung by i skipped a grade you know when i was really little yeah and like everything always came easy when i was you know doing third grade math in first grade and when i was fucking Mm. acing algebra in ninth grade like whatever and like when shit comes easy the second it doesn't come easy you're like fuck this dude i'm not right you know and right. so like exactly. i really fucked up like my academia i could have really used um a little bit of steering back towards the importance of it and how to actually make the most of it cuz i i love yeah. literature you know and i wish i had a little bit of a stronger foundation that mm-hmm. you know i wasn't just fucking off in my ap english class in 12th grade
1: yeah you know yeah no, literature is, is uh, you know, it's funny. I um, got there's so many things to say, one of which is, you know, I felt the same way about my mom's praise of me. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I'm awesome. I'm the best at everything. And as soon as something was hard, I'm like, wait, what?
0: Yeah, <laughs> you well, know? I'm not going to uh, do yeah. this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do this. Yeah, exactly. But the other thing is that literature, and this is what I tell everybody who is sort of my, my, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second, but you know, yeah. literature. clam on up. Literature is a recent invention. The novel is a very recent invention. Before 1800, every single piece of fiction it was fantasy fiction. If you think about it, you know, right. all of Shakespeare was fantasy fiction. You know, there's like witches and elves and, you know, magic and, you know, Beowulf, the Odyssey. Everything was right. fantasy fiction. The, uh, you know, Odysseus. I mean, uh, not Odysseus. Uh, Oedipus. You know. Right. He's he's a fantastical figure. Um. You know. So so it's like I I think I think when people deride genre, I think you know you, I, I don't know. I, I sort of veered off into into my own little soapbox here, but I think he, humans. And this comes back to the religion thing, I think as well as the humans need these mythological stories to make sense of the world. And I think that's what hopefully my gay hero can do for gay or,
0: you know, well, as long as you follow Joseph Campbell's writings, I'm sure that you right. will, um, right. which I have, I still haven't read his shit, man. There's so much shit that I'm like, I got to read that shit. I got to fucking, maybe mm. if I read that shit, it'll all make sense. Though I have well, heard you know, that like his archetypes are very yeah. helpful.
1: I think they are very helpful and they, and, and honestly they do go back to Aristotle, which is, you know, someone else I, I did read in college right. and he talks about, you know, the archetypal story structures and the, and the seven heroes or how many heroes he talks about. Um, but at the same time, dude, all these people were like old white dudes, you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> you know, I feel like there's, no, there shouldn't be that gatekeeping in this world. And I think it's changing right now in Hollywood and I I'm think, really yeah. happy to see it. Yeah, is that hopefully, hopefully we can tell stories that escape the structure a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I do think part of it, I do think some of it's hardwired into being human. I do. You know we're born, we learn shit. We try to do stuff. And then we get weak and we die and we reflect upon our lives. Mm-hmm. That's the human experience. That's also the three act experience. <laughs> you know? Right. Good point. Uh, right. Yeah. So it's like, Fuck. I think, I think some of it's hardwired in, but, um, but I also think that, you know, a lot of these archetypal structures are, 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 you know, white dudes. So
0: <laughs> I had, a, I had someone ask me recently, like, are you, do you find yourself concerned that, you know, as as a white man, like Hollywood's making a big push to include other people? And, you know, like, I don't know, it's kind of I guess I was a little taken aback by the question because yeah. um, I don't I don't ever feel threatened or I, I would never feel like, oh, there's not going to be any space left for me like in my eyes it's just adding more seats at the table right and then the whole table gets bigger you know and the table just keeps growing and growing and growing i don't really think there's a cap on how many people can be at the proverbial table i don't know if any of that's
1: registering yeah, no, for sure, it's rich. I, I think I think it's a great thing that's happening right now. It's a great conversation we have. I mean, I I lost out on a, on a job last year because it went it went to a, a woman, and I'm so happy about it. I mean, obviously, sucks, but like, but it was great. I'm like, that is the way it should be. You know, at least we have to course correct here. Exactly. We have to. Um, but uh, one thing I will say is that I do think there is a danger of, of limiting. and I'm trying to choose my words very carefully in this sure. climate, but like, I think I can speak on this in a, in a somewhat unique way. Um, is not limiting what stories certain people can tell? I feel like, I feel like now if I tried to make my film that I made in Afghanistan about two Afghan kids coming of age in Afghanistan, the question would be now in this climate, well, are you the right person to tell that? Right. You know, should an Afghan tell that? And I think, I think that's a very valid question to ask, but I also think that, well, I think two things. One is I tried very, very hard and did everything I possibly could to make the story as good as I possibly could culturally, um, and dramatically. And I worked with a lot of Afghans to tell the story. Um, I think the story was able to be told because I had access to resources um, and funding that, you know, I had access to because I'm a white American dude. Sure. Um, and so I'm not sure if that, if the story would have been told if I didn't tell it really? a, but also, also I think, um, also, I think there's something to be said about telling like, stories from different perspectives, you know? So like my perspective on, that story is very different than an African filmmaker's perspective on the same story. And I think both are valid, you know? I agree. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I think there's, there is some of that going around as well as like, you know, you can't tell that story because you're, you know, not a native American or you can't tell that story because you're not, you know? And I think, I think that, I think, as I said, there should be some, for sure, some course correction. I think we need to do that. Absolutely. But I do think that, you know, I feel like there's value in
2: I guess what I'm trying to say is
1: I think me as a white man going to Afghanistan and immersing myself in that culture and change me as a person I think for the better and that I chose to tackle tackle that story and try to tell it I think um, created a dialogue between me and the filmmakers I worked with and and you know the audience that watched it and I think that dialogue is important i don't and i don't know i'm not I think if you ask me the question, who should tell the story about two Afghan kids coming of age in Afghanistan you or an Afghan filmmaker? my answer would be both right, I think that's what I'm trying to say exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> well, I uh I could probably keep talking to you for a while and I think that um I would like to leave it there and um thank you yeah. very much. Like this is this is like really enlightening and I could I could do this shit all day. Um yeah, just to be able to was, like it- learn from you and your perspective you know
1: well dude it was amazing to talk to you and uh and i feel like you have a warmth and an empathy and a great podcast voice (laughs) so (laughs) it was it's great to talk to you And and i really do think this kind of format or where you know you set up this structure to to explore these questions i think is is great so i commend you for doing it
0: thanks man i'm i'm kind of figuring it out as i go and it feels good and um i'm gonna keep doing it and um i really hope that i really look forward to seeing your documentary and um i hope that you know you get the oscar this time
1: (laughs) yeah thanks man i appreciate that yeah man and uh and keep on writing
0: i will and i i would love to work with you again at some point in our careers which i'm sure we will but
1: i know it'll happen i know it'll happen
0: quit smoking take care of yourself i love you buddy
1: love you too man i'll be in touch all right
0: bye (laughs) see (laughs) you